11.55, almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. One more story before 12. Just to keep us warm. In five minutes, it'll be the 21st of April. 100 years ago on the 21st of April, out on the waters around Spivey Point, a small clipper ship drew toward land. Suddenly, out of the night, the fog rolled in. For a moment, they could see nothing, not a foot ahead of them. And then they saw a light. My God, it was a fire burning on the shore, strong enough to penetrate the swirling mist. They steered a course toward the light, but it was a campfire like this one. The ship crashed against the rocks. The hull sheared in two. The mast snapped like a twig, and the wreckage sank the men aboard. And on the bottom of the sea lay the Elizabeth Dane with her crew, their lungs filled with salt water, their eyes open and staring into the darkness. And above, as suddenly as it had come, the fog lifted, receded back across the ocean and never came again. But it is told by the fishermen and their fathers and grandfathers that when the fog returns to Antonio Bay, the men at the bottom of the sea, out in the water by Spivey Point, will rise up and search for the campfire that led them to their dark and icy death. 21st of April. Sky, and I will be your host as we take a ghoulish trip to the haunted coastal town of Antonio Bay as we celebrate the 40th anniversary of John Carpenter's tale of ghostly revenge, The Fog. And I just can't put this voice on for any longer than that because it actually hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so joining me tonight are two of my fellow Film 89 cohorts from just a few miles up the road. It's Mr. Steve Amos. Welcome back, Steve. Ahoy, me hearties. How is how are all you landlubbers doing out there today? And uh, from slightly further afield in Melbourne, Australia, it's Mr. Hayden Spurrell. We don't have pirates or anything like that down here in Victoria. I'm not even going to try and pretend. <laughs> um, how are wow. we going? <laughs> so, gents, this is uh, the first time the three of us have been back together since episode 50. 
Yeah, oh, and yeah. that was a classic. Yeah, and unfortunately, well, we were going to try and do it again, weren't we? We were going to try and get the five of us together. Neil's bowed out, you know, he's had a bit of a busy week, and, uh, well, so was Richie, to be honest. Well, let's be honest, guys. <laughs> they chickened out because they don't like horror films, and, uh, you know, <laughs> I-, I think the real reason is that they're a little bit too scared of uh, even a film like The Fog, but there you mm. go. Even an old-fashioned film like this. Yeah, an old-fashioned ghost tale, yeah. So, um, obviously, last episode, um, none of us were on it because we handed the reins over to our good friend Jacob Rivera, who uh, hosted his first episode for Film 89. He had the, the brilliant Leanne Kubitsch on, and they did an episode, obviously, on The Social Network. Uh, what do we think of that one, guys? It's quite ironic, really. It's The Social Network, and yet nobody from Film 89 was on there. <laughs> you know, none of the regulars. Kind of fitting, right? But it was a fantastic episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, genuinely. Uh, Jacob, Leanne, you were both absolutely yeah. fantastic. You know, that episode was a joy to listen to. Uh, it was a joy to edit and, and, and piece together. And yeah, absolutely brilliant. And you know, we can't wait to get uh, Leanne back on, you know, whatever the topic may be. So uh, tonight's film for our Halloween special. Steve, it, w- it was your idea. So why The Fog? You know, we all love John Carpenter. Anybody who loves movies and anybody who loves horror loves John Carpenter. And for me, my favorite of his films, which is quite hard really considering he's done so many great ones, is The Fog. And the reason being is because it's because it's a good old-fashioned horror film, a good old-fashioned ghost story. It doesn't, if, if, he doesn't worry about if it makes any sense or if this adds up or that adds up or if there's this loose end or that. He doesn't care. He's just telling a good old-fashioned ghost story. And as the, you know, we'll discuss when we discuss the film, it sets the tone from the very beginning. It is on the beach at night in front of a fire with all darkness surrounding you and just a good old-fashioned tale a yarn well you love a good ghost story you know you're, you're a huge horror fan you're a massive I, fan of, of stephen king and you know a writer yourself i try what is it about this film steve that you know makes it your favorite john carpenter film which is you know you know quite the achievement given how amazing some of his films are well because i, I love ghost stories i i love ghost stories I, I mean right back to when i was a kid and i saw a film like the innocence now, I was just going to say Jack Clayton's The Innocence. I know you're a huge fan of that film. I love that movie. And that is a film which, you know, it was 19, I think it's 1960. 61. It's uh, black, black and white. And yet, it freaks me out every single time I watch it. You know, there's a moment in there when um, Deborah Kerr is hiding behind the curtain and she thinks she sees like a ghost in the distance and then a face appears behind her. And even now, I haven't got any hair, but it's standing on the back of my mm. head. You know, it's that scary, and I do like that. I like the idea, the simple idea of ghosts. You know, I, I, I don't go into zombies much. I don't go into, the, you know, all the occult and stuff like that that they have in, um, you know, so many films. But I do like ghosts. For something about a good ghost really, really puts me on edge. And, I, you know, that, that lovely feeling that you get when you're watching a horror film, when uh, you are on the edge of your seat and every muscle in your body is, you know, ready to stand and flee I, I just love them well you know as, as you and I discussed Steve when we did uh, The Shining and Doctor Sleep last year you know I I love horror horror's always been one of my favourite genres but I'll, I'll be honest with you certain things um, if it involves a guy chasing people with a chainsaw it doesn't bother me um, I don't find no. it you know, particularly terrifying when it's when it's a real life person doing something anything supernatural and instantly it just gets like you say you know the hairs on the back of my neck going up films like poltergeist you know films which we're going to come to later because uh, you know as well as and, and again let's get, give an early spoiler review for this 40 year old film because this is the 40th anniversary of john carpenter's the fog if you've not seen the film 
and you've got any interest in doing so please turn us off go rent the film download it whatever you need to do watch it then come back and listen to us because obviously this is a 40 year old film we're going to be going in depth you know talking about this film completely spoiler filled but yeah there's something about the, the paranormal and, and the supernatural that just gets to me and as much as i don't particularly find the the fog that scary a film because you know there is an element it, it is kind of a zombie film in a way with you know like these long dead ghouls whatever they are you know coming back and and, and terrorizing this small town but I, I just do like the fact that it is like you say steve a good old-fashioned horror yarn which was always john carpenter's intention he, he had massive success with halloween in 1978 two years before this which we you know obviously we're going to come to later you know there's just something simple effective and efficient about this 90 minute film that starts with you know john houseman sat on a beach talking to these kids and it, it's literally kids sat around a campfire it's a brilliant way of giving across some exposition because he's telling these kids one of whom is going to be one of the side characters in the film he's telling them this this tale and it's kind of also like the exposition that the audience is getting but yeah the fog has always been one of my favorite horror films and like you steve it's not my favorite john carpenter film i think you know in no, episode I know three that. i made that clear <laughs> it's, it's always the, it's always been the thing that's always been my favorite john carpenter film but this is definitely up there. And it's also one of my favourite horror films. Maybe not top 10 for me. I, you know, I think there's a lot more films which would sort of keep this out of a top 10. But yeah, this has always been a film that I've been really fond of. Probably one of the first John Carpenter films I ever saw. Maybe the first. Was Maybe it? Escape from New York was the first. And, and then this. But yeah, certainly one of the earlier John Carpenter films I saw. Hayden, uh, what about you? I, when did I see The Fog? First, it was when it got remastered. So, what was that last year? Early last year? Yeah, I'm I think not it was uh, 2018. <laughs> yep. St- Studio Canal re-released it in the UK. Yes. Uh, with those um, those brilliant covers by is it Matt Ferguson? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we got the same releases. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first time I think that you, Steve, and I uh, talked about the fog from the point of view of you seeing it. So was it was that the first time you saw it? Yeah. So I've seen it probably three times now. Again, unlike Steve, it's not my favorite. Uh, John Carpenter film and like you Scott doesn't doesn't so much scare me as you guys are saying I love the 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 sort of ghost story that's going on I love John Houseman's opening it's I I would love to have him tell me ghost stories before I go to bed you know (laughs) his his voice is perfect in that scene the whole backstory is the part that really grips me like this this idea that these pirates came to Antonio Bay and I won't go go into it until we get straight into the film but well, Leo, let's, let's, let's go into it now. So basically these, was it six pirates? No, it was six conspirators on Antonio Bay. They conspired to have these these visitors murdered and they would steal their treasure, right? Yeah. Um, well, they go on Steve. I, I, I suppose you'd be the best one for this. Yeah, it was partly just to, to steal their treasure, but also because it was a leper ship. So there were people on there who had leprosy, and they were going to set up a leper colony not far from Antonio Bay. And they just couldn't abide the idea of having this these diseased people so close. In any way, in some ways, you could say they were giving them um, themselves an excuse to steal the gold from them, you know, because of yeah. this uh, this disease. It's kind of like a revenge film, isn't it? It is, yes. Mm. Obviously, I've just mentioned a you know a film that had a huge influence on me as far as horror goes when I was younger, um, Poltergeist. That's a film where you've got this family in this lovely 
sort of suburban housing estate in California. And then we later find out that the housing development was built on an old Indian burial ground. That is a tale of a haunting and a, and a supernatural tale. And this one is also a kind of supernatural tale, but like a, a revenge tale. And whereas, you know, the estate in Poltergeist was built on an Indian burial ground, a sacred ground that, you know, from the point of view of the you know, the Indians. And then we later find out then in the second film, these are the terrible things that, that happened you know, in relation to that, you know, sacred ground. With Antonio Bay, that town is completely, you know, the success of the town is built on like sort of like blood money because you've got this guy, Blake, who he comes across in the film, doesn't he, in his like sort of ghoulish form as a pirate. They've all got cutlasses, you know, they've all got, you know, like hooks and stuff. But, you know, they were just lepers who, who genuinely approached the townsfolk saying, look, we're going to offer you money if you let us settle, you know, nearby. And they wanted to set up this little leper colony a mile away you know the the ancestor of father malone uh, played by hal holbrook you know again and it's a great way the exposition comes across he tells us about the fact that you know these conspirators got together and thought you know we we feel terrible we want to honor this man and, and and you know give him a safe haven but we can't stomach the idea of having a leper colony you know just a mile away from our town so you know they caused this like ship to, to crash on the rocks and you know, they all drown and then it was kind of like a curse on the town that a hundred years later, as we start the film, you know, we are now a hundred years since the anniversary of this like sort of terrible thing, things start to get a bit funky in Antonio Bay. And you know, like like I say, that brilliant John Houseman opening. But then before that, you know, before we go into the film proper, we've got that title card that says, "Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream?" Which was a, a quote Edgar from Allan Poe, right? yeah, Edgar Allan Poe, and that was the idea of. Yeah. Uh, producer and screenwriter and is it right Steve that at the time that this film was conceived that Deborah Hill and John Carpenter were together I know that by the time they were making it he was with he was married to Adrian Barbo yeah uh, Adrian Barbo yeah. yeah yeah he did say because um, in um, the commentary and some of the um, documentaries I've seen on this he does mention that some of the scenes they were actually living together he and um, Deborah were living together mm. in the same house when they were doing this or doing that coming up together so it could have been I, I don't know if they were in a relationship, though, you know that. What do, what do you think, Steve, of that Edgar Allan Poe quote at the beginning of the film? The thing is, Edgar Allan Poe is for so many the respectable face of classic horror, isn't he? And his poetry is just so great. It's so gothic. It drips with atmosphere. So, you know, even if it's got nothing to do with the rest of the film, it's a perfect quote. I, I see what you mean. Though it, it does seem to have like a little bearing on the actual story of the fog itself. I think you can read into yeah. it what you want. I you, think that's you can. Sort of, you, know, you can. Yeah. yeah. If anything, the film is closer to Lovecraftian than anything Edgar Allan Poe put together, right? It's got that sort of cosmic aspect, sort of this town kind of getting what it deserved, in mm. a sense. Mm. I agree with um, Hayden, though. It is very Lovecraftian in many respects. I mean, if you've ever read Lovecraft, he is quite a little bit more difficult than uh, Edgar Allan Poe. He really goes into the... He, it's like he had this huge thesaurus next to him and he uses just for every word that he can think of sometimes to describe the same thing. His, his stories are excellent. I, you can see a little bit of that there, this, this combination of... Uh, otherworldliness and um, all those the supernatural almost you know gods returning to Antonio Bay yeah the film was you know it's set in the fictional town of Antonio Bay California it was actually shot at Point Reyes California which is 40 miles north of San Francisco and it turns out that that place where they chose to shoot was actually the second foggiest place in North America after Nantucket you know once we've had the John Houseman opening then we cut to the church with Hal Holbrook's character Father Malone uh, is talking to a guy that works it, and that is none other than John Carpenter himself doing a, a little bit of a, a Hitchcock cameo. Had no yeah, idea of that said, the first time. 
<laughs> he said that he was uh, he's pissing himself, and everybody in the crew were laughing at him. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's fine in the scene. <laughs> he's fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're on the eve of the hundredth anniversary of the sinking of Blake's ship. As I said, strange things start happening all over Antonio Bay. For me, the thing I love most about the fog is just the sense of mood. And particularly in the in the opening portion of the film, the, the sense of mood setup is just brilliant. They filmed everything with natural lighting. Uh, you know, like when we see the lone guy in the convenience store, everything was done with natural lighting, and and it was shot by one of the all time great cinematographers, Dean Cundy, who had shot Halloween for Carpenter two years previously, and then a load of Carpenter's subsequent films, including The Thing. Cundy also shot the Back to the Future films for Bob Zemeckis, films which. Uh, we've spoken about recently on this podcast and there's a scene whilst we're on the, the subject of the film cinematography obviously it's a very dark opening isn't it but then there's a scene at about 40 minutes in the film where we see stevie wing uh, adrian barbo's character driving along that coastal road she gets out of the car walks down to the lighthouse and it's quite a nice little drawn out scene but i've got to say hands down for me easily one of the most beautiful looking i've ever seen in a john carpenter film well, there's not a lot of scenes like that in this film either where it just lets lets the camera sit on one moment or one scene. Happens maybe twice. Otherwise, the film's very much an, an editing game where it's lots of cuts and, you know, you're going from one perspective to another to another all the time. So those scenes, like the one you mentioned where she parks and she starts to walk down a lighthouse, they're quite nice. They're sort of like a, a bit of a deep breath. Yeah, a bit, bit, a bit of breathing space, yeah. Not to say that the film's, you know, breakneck or anything like that. In fact, it's, again, like you said, it's more that sort of atmospheric, it's almost trance-like. Um, for me, it sort of washes over you a little bit as you're watching it. Well, I think, I think Hayden, that his previous film, Halloween, it's a 90-minute it's film, and it cracks along at a brilliant pace. But when you think about it and you break it down scene by scene, even in Halloween, you've, it, it, it's like as if Carpenter still takes his time to make sure that mood and atmosphere is at the forefront. You know, how much of Halloween is, is actually shot at daytime with, you know, those scenes of Jamie Lee Curtis going about her business in Haddonfield and, you know, Michael Myers stalking another scene where she's walking uh, through the estate and, and she's looking behind her and Michael's coming in and out of the bushes and, and just effectively stalking her. But, then, you know, so much of, of that film like when you think of it, you think of it as, as a dark nighttime horror film. But then it's surprising when you sit down and watch both films, how much of the films are set, you know, a day which gives really good contrast. Again, both films, given the fact that they were made for relatively minuscule budgets, just look absolutely beautiful. I think that when, what Carpenter realised and what a lot of film directors, especially in horror, tend to forget is if you want to put somebody in peril, you have to get to know them first yeah. you have to and you mm. have to if you can if not like them but see something of yourself or something of your life in them so that they are very relatable so that when they are in danger a little bit of you is in danger and a lot of um, films they forget that you know you, you'll see somebody very very quickly they're in danger they dispatched and it's over and that's not scary no because there's, there's nothing to pay there's no, there's nothing due no there's know? no there's no you know if you can have a good payoff you have to put the work in with the setup, yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, and that's, and that's what he did with long scenes in um, in Halloween, and you know, there's a scene with is it Nancy Loomis in um, in Halloween when we following her around for a big session about ten minutes in the film. Yeah, 
you know, he plays on that because we know who she is now, and then he just follows her here, and he, and not, not only do we know her, so we know that she's in danger, and we relate to that, and we empathise with that, but also he plays around with our expectations by making it by dragging it out, and then is it going to happen now? No, is it going to happen now? No, it's yeah. going to happen now, and that is it's uh, much more fun because he's playing with us and we're going on for the, along for the ride, but also. When it does happen, it just cranks up the tension so much that yeah. he doesn't have to do much at the end because yeah. we're doing it for him. Before this rewatch, I hadn't seen The Fog for quite a long time. And in between my last viewing of The Fog and you know the most recent one, I couldn't tell you how many films I've seen and how many films I've you know I've had to watch you know over and over again in preparation for episodes, in preparation for pieces uh, you know, I've, I've written for the site. So, you know, pardon the phrase, my recollection of the fog has become over time a little bit foggy. (laughs) And I had in my mind that it was one of these sort of films that happens over the course of one night. So when the film opens and things, you know, strange things are afoot in in Antonio Bay, I thought, yeah, you know, we're straight into it and we're going to be introduced throughout the night to all of these characters and they're all going to get together and realise what's happening. You know, the film's going to play out like that. But when it didn't, and then we cut to the next day, of course, I, I had forgotten how many of these daytime scenes are in there and just how much of this film isn't set at night. And I I think it's such a a benefit to the film that things are spread out over the course of a night, a day, and then another night. And it just, it allows you to get introduced to these characters because otherwise, like you say, Steve, if you don't put the the legwork in and introduce us characters that we know a little bit about, you know, because again, you know, he's only got you know what forty five minutes to you know to introduce us to every you know one and put all the you know the chess pieces in place before that second night where everything really does get a bit messed up and and people start getting off and you know we're not going to care about those characters unless you know we get to know them so even though I you know I, I do remember it being quite a brisk film and then obviously checking the running time before I hit play I was like oh yeah ninety minutes you know, I don't think there's much in the way of fat in this film at all but. Like you say, Hayden, it's all about the editing with this film. Those 90 minutes, I think, are used very economically. But there are bits of the film which I think it's not lagging at all. That The pace is perfect, but there's a nice bit of variation in pace throughout the film to, like you say, Hayden, give you a bit of breathing space. If nothing else, Carpenter is extremely efficient. And like he, he he's proof that you don't need to change the game to be able to create effective stories, you know? This film doesn't do anything out of the box. It's like you're saying, it goes from night to day to night. That's the most basic of three-act structures right there. He's doing nothing wild with the camera work, but everything does exactly what it needs to do. I looked at the runtime. It's As you said, it's only a 90-minute film. The opening credits sequence is about 12 minutes of that, and that's quite long you know but it doesn't feel like it's long you're not you're not sort of looking at your watch and thinking why are we still looking at credits because he's again doing that setup and even though this and halloween are quite you know they're very different films i think that they there are similarities and i think that we're already pointing out some of those but they're not exactly neither of them are very plot heavy in a sense obviously the fog has that huge backstory behind it but there's nothing overly complex going on in either film no 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 i agree i like you know in the, in the same way that this film opens with a bit of exposition you know the way halloween opens with back in 1963 with a young michael myers obviously doing you know what he does that fateful night to his sister even though that's a flashback that's still exposition because that's giving us valuable information very quickly and very efficiently and effectively in order to 
put us where we are then when we jump forward 15 years you know to 1978 and yeah you know th- there's nothing overly complex about these two films and you know from that point of view there is a similarity there are there's loads of connective tissue between halloween and the fog in so much as the cast the crew dean mm. Cundy was the director of photography jamie lee curtis obviously is in both films you know, there's a lot of overlap then with uh, Nancy Keys, who plays Sa- Sandy. The crew was basically entirely the same, yeah, right, um, between both films? Tommy yeah, Lee yeah, Wallace. Yeah. Was, Tommy Lee uh, Wallace, of course, yeah. Yeah, who is the behind-the-scenes hero of this film, I think, if, if you find out how much he actually did. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, I don't think there's, um, there's many films out there either that really captures the nighttime atmosphere with um, Stevie Wayne, you know, on the radio and her voice is so quiet and the the jazz that they use, which, you know, they used because of um, financial uh, reasons. It's, it's really got this lethargy that, you know, of, of this nighttime lethargy, which is really, really atmospheric. Yeah. And, you know, you really feel like, you know, it is the middle of the night. There's not many films, even films set overnight that really, really capture those, uh, you know, that that feeling in the middle of the night when you just haven't got that energy to do everything, yeah. you know, and, and you're just going on because you've just got to, you know. This is probably one of the best for that. I, you know, I would say maybe After Hours and there's a few other films, but there's not many that captures it as well as this. I think The Warriors does it well, if you talk about films. The Warriors, yes. Which, obviously, of the same, you know, era. The Warriors was yeah. a year later. And then, you know, you had a DJ in that film. You had uh, Lynn, is it? Thick pen playing the radio DJ, and you know, she had the most you know seductive, sultry voice I've ever heard. It was fantastic, yeah. but that's another film that just plays out over the course of a night and that makes you feel like it's night, yeah. And again, a film with a similar runtime to The Fog, you know, very efficient, very effective. But then, going back to that first night, you know, we move on to a gas station that's kind of like mysteriously coming to life in the middle of the night. All of this material, was... yeah, it's very close <clears throat> encounters, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. And again, a oh, lot yeah. of this stuff is stuff which I'd forgotten with, with like. You know, actual inanimate objects come into life. Like these, these ghosts or, or of Blake and his crew or whatever must be walking around the town manipulating things. You know, a lot of that stuff is stuff I'd forgotten about. And then, you know... It's the supernatural energy, I think, just arriving before the fog itself. Yeah. Now, going into the film's making, obviously, you know, the, the, the film was shot on, you know, I, I think the initial budget was less than a million. After the initial shoot and the initial post-production period, Carpenter very quickly realised that the material they had when it was assembled in the rough cut just wasn't scary enough. So quite unprecedented, you know, especially for not a first-time director. Obviously, he and Deborah Hill had had huge success with Halloween, which on a paltry budget became, I think, was it at the time the, the most successful independent film ever made? Yes, I think it was. Yeah, yes. I think it was the, certainly the most profitable. Yeah, for quite a few years. Yeah. With The Fog, he wasn't happy with the film he had initially, so they went back and they did quite a few extra weeks of additional pickup shooting, which then pushed the final budget to $1.1 million. This was a really pressured pickup period as all that extra stuff they shot was all being filmed on the fly. It was all being, it, it was stuff which was being come up with on the spot, you know, by Carpenter and co. And then all of these additional little scenes were either entirely new scenes or little extra bits which were filmed, which had to seamlessly then fit in with all the footage I already had. You know, like I say, some were brief inserts and others were new scenes entirely, but, you know, Carpenter just wasn't happy. You know, he went back and, and again, you know, time pressures and time constraints meant that a lot of this stuff, you know, and a lot of it was new effects work. You know, as we'll come to later, Rob Bottin was brought in 
and I'd, you know, to do extra effects work. And I wonder what that original cut would have been like. Because, I, like I say, I don't find The Fog a particularly gory or, or terrifying film. I think it is quite tame, certainly very tame compared to a lot of horror films. But I just wonder what that initial version was like. I think about a third of the final film is that newer footage which is remarkable um because i think carpenter says in the in the behind the scenes that the initial reactions were that people were just disappearing into a fog and that Mm. was that and that's not exactly scary you know we've all done it we've all sort of ended up in a fog and we just end up on the other side i'd be curious to see that initial cut i don't think we ever will obviously but i think it's one of those things which work very well on on the blank page Mm. when you're writing it because you can imply certain things of what's happening. But, you know, when it's on the big screen, you need to see a little bit more. Yeah. But uh, going back to the special effects, though, um, you know, that they filmed, one, you know, extra, there's a great story that uh, I think it was Tommy Lee Wallace said about how there was one scene where Nancy Loomis, she um, was in the room and she's supposed to, um, a chair was supposed to move by itself and it frightened her. And, and they were all wondering, you know, how are we going to do this? Should we have pulleys? Should we have wires? And the special effects man said, um, I tell you what, if I sit on the floor, I'll push it with a chair, with a stick. <laughs> that was hilarious. I remember <laughs> I, I saw that. And it works really, really well because yeah. of that. But then, I mean, when you think that a third of it then was filmed at, you know, if it started off with a budget of a million and ended up with 1.1 million, a third of the film was done really on the cheap then. Yeah, no, this, Steve, is kind of like the complete inverse. Talking about another film that was subject of considerable reshoots and, and sort of behind-the-scenes problems. Looking back to the episode we did on Cleopatra. Yes. Whereas yes. <laughs> reams of, of footage, hundreds upon hundreds of hours of footage was filmed, and then that had to be condensed down into a three to four hour film. Whereas like, you know, with John Carpenter with The Fog, he was able to go away for a few weeks extra and film a significant portion of footage for the final film. Because unlike something as opulent and over the top and just absurd as Cleopatra, you know, the, the, the shoot for that film became, this was the complete opposite. This was very low budget, independent filmmaking. It's the anti-Cleopatra. The anti-Cleopatra, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, and of course that was, um, wasn't it four hours and 11 minutes, Cleopatra? Yeah. And this is 90 minutes? Yeah, yeah. What you can do, isn't it? That's right, it's like what the Allen says, isn't it? He can improve any film by cutting it down to 90 minutes. Yeah. So we're introduced then to our two principals, Tom Atkins, who would go on to star in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and one of the all-time iconic actresses, certainly for us growing up in the 70s and 80s, Steve, yeah? Oh, yes, yes. Jamie Lee Curtis, daughter of Hollywood royalty, Janet Lee, the original Scream Queen from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960. She turns up in the film. Jamie Lee Curtis, Hollywood royalty. Janet Lee was her mum. Tony Curtis uh, was her father. And she had been the star, you know, the, the kind of final girl of John Carpenter's Halloween two years earlier. And what a different performance as well, the different yes. character. Yeah. You know, one is also nice and squeaky clean and uh, would never think of getting into a car with a stranger, yeah. you know, without ca- without carrying her books anyway. And there she is in the, the new film, you know, in um, The Fog, and she's uh, the first thing she asks is, you know, are you weird? Good. Good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My last, uh, my last ride was so normal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so she is completely different, and, and she's so believable doing it as well. Yeah. Now, Hayden, what do you think of, and this is something we've got to address, about Tom Atkins? Now, Tom Atkins' character of Nick Castle, Nick Castle also being a real-life guy who actually played the shape in Halloween. There's a lot of character names in this film which are real-life people who have worked with Carpenter in the past and certainly on Halloween. But what do you think about Tom Atkins, a guy that was 39 at the time, very quickly bedding this girl that's half his age? (laughs) Do you think that's plausible, given how just 
drop dead gorgeous Jamie Lee Curtis is? I think it's fine. Like, I, th- I think you're in this small town. In fact, the thing that's less plausible to me is that they basically become a couple within hours. Like, it's it's not implausible for me that they'd sleep together. Like, everyone sleeps together these days. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is 40 years ago, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. What, what do you guys think of it? <laughs> the thing is, Hayden, the reason I ask is, Tom Atkins is a... He's, he's got form for this because he would like to do it in Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. So I was watching the, yeah, again, the behind the scenes and per, I didn't actually know that Atkins was quite a prominent actor in that sort of decade and he was quite beloved. Well, he was he was a bit of a, you know, he, he turned up in a few sort of cult classic horror films. Uh, there was Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which he ended up bedding a girl, a beautiful girl half his age again. Then it was oh, Night of the Creeps, Steve, he was in that, yeah? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah I you know, he was I just kind of, for, oh, a long time. Yeah, there's there's like a little cult following of, of, of Tom Atkins and the fact that you know <laughs> again, like he was doing really well with these women half his age. You know, he just beds them with ease. You know, what is it about this guy that these beautiful young women just find so alluring? It was something from the eighties and into the nineties, though. You know, I mean, look at uh, you know people like um, Sean Connery. He was never with anybody his own age. No. Um, I think the closest he ever got was when he was with Audrey Hepburn in um, Robin and Marion, you know, and that was it. Most of them were at least 30 years, maybe 40 years younger. And, of course, one of his last big films was uh, with Catherine Seacher-Jones. You know, she was in her 20s. He was already probably in his 90s. I don't know. It didn't stop him. Yeah, you you look at um, Halloween 3. It's like Stacey Nelkin is is 24 years younger than him. (laughs) 24 years. So, Yeah. yeah, you know credit to tom atkins he's he's got something <laughs> well he's he's weird so that's 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 all she, that's all well, she think, needed <laughs> yeah i think it's great in the fog because jamie lee curtis's character elizabeth she she makes it happen not him which is which is a great little touch oh yeah, like yeah she's yeah. she seems like she's the one that's in control on, on that particular occasion yeah, yeah, but he's the, he's a businessman, you know. He owns business. He um, owns the ships that go out and everything like that. And there he is driving around with beer in his um, hand, picking up strangers. <laughs> and of course, then we've got our other principal, Adrian Barbo, who would become the wife of John Carpenter. She plays radio jockey Stevie Wing. Barbo and Carpenter had just married, and. She would then later appear in Carpenter's Escape from New York in 1981. Now, there's a scene early on in the film where she can be seen smoking. Now, Barbo hated smoking, but Carpenter wanted her to kind of hark back to the women in the films of Howard Hawks, who Carpenter was just, you know, he had complete reverence for. He'd made Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976, which was very similar, you know, in in a lot of ways to Rio Bravo, a Howard Hawks film, which we've covered on a previous episode. What do we think of Barbo's character and the fact that she pretty much plays the entirety of this film, other than, you know, a few brief scenes with her son, she plays things pretty much on her own, talking into a microphone. Well, first of all, she's got a fantastic voice, I think. Yes. You know, it, it's uh, it's sexy and it's sleepy and it's it's the type of voice that you want to hear on the radio at night, late at night. Yeah. yeah, you're right. You're right. She's the all CNI of the film. The one who you know, she's the one who can see it from uh, a distance and tell everybody you know what's happening. So, in, any, in many respects, she is a little bit of exposition as well. You know, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming up this street. It's coming up that street. Yeah. So we don't need to know. We don't have to have any more exposition because she's doing it for us. Barbara's got great screen presence. I mean, if if there's one thing you could maybe want to nitpick, it's that so they they added her whole. That, I think they extended her battle with the pirates at the end, and that's sort of the alternating that between the church confrontation and hers. And hers probably just wanes a little bit in terms of like, okay, but get back to where the main event's taking place. But th- that's a very minor thing. 
yeah, I don't know if they actually had to shoot that additional stuff and, and show her having to fight off Blake's men. I think it would have made more sense to me if Blake's men had just gone for the town. But again, yeah. you know, it's such a minor nitpick. It's only, you know, thinking about it now that that's something I think it was entirely necessary. But, you know, I don't think it detracts much from the film. Yeah, but there's there's a few things like that in the film which I don't think detracts at all. You know, I mean, we'll, when we get to the very ending, you know, I mean, why didn't Blake kill the uh, the priest straight away? Why did he have to come back up back? You know, a couple hours later. You know, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of little things like that, but I don't care. I just enjoy it. You know, I mean, for what it yeah, is. Yeah, and I don't just, think you meant you know. to care. Well, all right, the scene on the fishing boat. One of the three men, you know, the the first victim of of, of Blake and, and and his ghouls, is George Buckflower, who played the Hill Valley hobo Red in the Back to the Future films. And then he went on to reappear in three more John Carpenter films. Now, I think a lot of this scene, you know, a lot of the additional stuff that was shot were you know, a lot more... I don't want to use the term gory, because the scene itself isn't that gory. The things with the sword going through one of the guys, the the, you know, the hook going into the neck, I think a lot of that was... I mean, in fact, I think we... He hooks him from the back, doesn't he? I don't actually think we see it. But again, it's not particularly gory. But then that makes me think, like, what was the film like before all of this extra stuff was shot? Initially, surely Carpenter could have gone away with, you know, a PG rating at the time. As you know, Steve, the PG rating back, you know, in in the late 70s was, you you could get away with a hell of a lot more in a PG film than you could nowadays. Oh, absolutely. When you listen to um, Carpenter and Hill talking about why they added a little bit more not only because they didn't think it was scary but also because the films of the time were becoming more violent yes but you're right you know i mean the stuff that they put in is not that even back then it wouldn't be that violent yes you see the sword going through um the one character but the rest you don't really see any connection between weapon and and body yeah and I, i'm not saying for a second implied. yeah i'm not saying yeah in, indeed a lot of it is implied and i think one of the most effective and just insanely intense horror films ever made is one of my favorites is the texas chainsaw massacre yes yeah yeah. Toby Hooper's original from 74. And that's one of the most violent films ever made, and yet you don't see yeah, the you violence. Don't, yeah. No, you don't see much in the way of blood. A lot of that, the actual violence in the film, is implied, or you know, like when Leatherface is going at Franklin, cutting him to pieces with a chainsaw, is off screen. You just don't see it. It reminds me of um, when all the people complaining that the scene in Reservoir Dogs when, uh, you know, the year cutting yeah. off uh, scene, and people saying it was too violent, and they swear they actually saw it, yeah. even though it's not in there. Yeah, because that's the thing that, you know, when you do it right, like how many people came out of initial screenings of Seven and, and said it was too much when you showed Gwyneth Paltrow's head in that box? Yeah, and I think yeah, Fincher exactly. even went on to say that, that, you know, test cards were, were complaining about that and he was like, we never showed it. You know, an effective director, it's, it's show, don't tell, the old adage. Yeah. And I think, now, again, none of this is a criticism as, as to the film. I think it works perfectly well. You don't have to show gore. The main thing this does well, as I said, you know, even in the opening, you know, from the opening to the very end, is this it's the sense of atmosphere, which is one of my favourite aspects of Halloween. And it is hard not to talk about the two films because they were made so close together, you know, by the same crew. We'll come on to the score later on. The score for Halloween and the fog are very similar, but you know, no less effective than each other. So let's talk about the effects in the film. Now, a lot of the fog effects, it surprised me the fact that a lot of it was fog that was created, shot and backlit, and then superimposed over you know real landscapes. But when I was a kid, I would never have thought that was anything other than real fog, like being blown on you know, onto sets, and you know a lot of it was real dry ice for such a low budget film. And you know we're talking initially the initial shoot was less than a million dollars. I think Carpenter does really well with the effects because I think the final film does not seem like a micro budget film. Certainly, you know a million dollars back in 1978, 1979, certainly when this film was made, a million dollars was decent sized horror film budget, but it was still in comparison to a lot of other films being made. Of 
the time was a very small budget film, certainly in comparison to Jaws, a film which was made four or five years previously. Yeah, there's um, a great scene in there where um, it's just, you know, they're driving through the town and they back up and then they stop and then they, you know, go out of frame and the fog almost, you know, encompasses them. Mm. And the way they filmed that was just to film it in reverse because the wind was blowing in the wrong direction and he was disappearing. So they actually reversed the whole shot. and And, you know, if you watch it now, the way it was filmed, it looks odd. It does, and it it was only when... Bad special effects. Yeah, it was only when that was mentioned in the audio commentary that I actually noticed it. Because prior to that, I'd, and I've seen this film, I don't know how many times, but I'd never noticed that before. And when you when you play footage in reverse, it always, you, you the eye can pick up you know stuff being played in reverse. This. Yeah, I, I never picked up on it at all. So it's little things like that, little clever filmmaking techniques that didn't cost anything. All they did was play the footage in reverse. But you know, I think that $1.1 million goes a hell of a long way, much like the, the micro-budget for Halloween. Dean Cundy said it best. He said that the fog had to act. So like it had to be dense and it, it, it couldn't just be, you know, fog is usually for scene setting. And yeah, it's it's that too, but it's also an actual character in this film. Going back to Cundy, like you mentioned there, that yeah, the fog itself is a character. But I think one of the other things that makes that budget seem sort of evaporate and you just don't think of it as being an aspect of the film and you think that it's a film that looks like it cost a hell of a lot more to make is I think because of a lot of that daytime photography that just looks so good Dean Cundy he shot it on Panavision in 2.35 to 1 which has always been Carpenter's preferred ratio it was a widescreen format uh, which he preferred given any film a more sort of epic scope. Uh, it was pro- processed at Metro Color. It's just the colors in that film look so vibrant. And this recent remaster that was done about two, three years ago, you know, for a film yeah, that on that budget filmed, that was yeah. made 40 years ago, it just looks fantastic. It looks pristine and it, it looks does. new. Yeah, it does look, you know, like Halloween now looks. And like the, you know, the recent uh, remaster a few years ago of The Thing. I just love it, the fact that these films that we, we grew up with, you know, films like James Cameron's original Terminator, a film which much like Robocop, always had a bit of a grainy look to it. It was shot in 1.85 to 1 on a particularly grainy film stock. But those two remasters of those two films that were done in, I think, around about 2014, are just jaw-dropping. And they've taken these films that I always was conscious of, even when I was younger, of the fact that they always looked overly grainy and looked a bit... Just, you know, they, they weren't shot, you know, on, on the same film stock that something like Jaws was shot on or something like Star Wars. But the fact now that they can remaster these films and just bring them up and look and make them look so good... It is great just for, you know, from the purposes of a cinephile like, like me who just loves physical media, just loves owning the best sort of looking version of a film. And just from the point of view of comfort of these films, which I love, are going to be preserved for all time now once they've been sort of remastered and, and put back together, just looking better than ever. Yeah, not only that, I think, though, you know, what the filmmakers, whether it's Cameron or Carpenter or whoever, back in the 80s would try it, would love to have achieved, but they couldn't because of budget. Now we have finally seen what they would have, you know, what they had in their mind's eye. Yeah. This pristine image, you know, which they couldn't get back then. But now we can. And that is such a privilege, I think. Obviously, we've got Jamie Lee Curtis uh, coming back in after the success of Halloween. What do we think of Kathy Williams, played by Janet Lee herself? Well, she could have been very much like a Larry Vaughan character, couldn't she? Yes. You know, I mean, at the beginning, that's what um, she's almost set up to be. She's, uh, she's not the mayor, but she's, I think she's a um, real estate agent. Mm. Who's doing this just to, you know, drum up some uh, future, you know, uh, money for herself and future business? Because, 
you know, if, if she can sell Antonio Bay, more people will be coming to live there and she can sell more um, houses. And there's a scene where she's talking to Father um, Malone. Malone. And, you know, he's talking about, you know, we'll get to it in a couple of minutes, but he's talking about the curse and everything and about how the town is built on a lie. And as he's talking, she's talking to Nancy Reeves behind her and she, you know, the, the expressions are great. You know, it's like, come on, hurry up, you know, yeah. whatever he's on about. But later, though, she she doesn't go that down route. It's an, it was an obvious route for him to take her down. Yeah. The Larry Vaughan kind of, you know, we've got to keep the town open, whatever. But she doesn't. She becomes an actually, it's a more real performance. It's, it's a bit more passive. Yeah, we, we're definitely getting some sort of callback to Jaws vibes. You've got a coastal town. It's, yeah, you know, yeah. obviously it's, a, it's the big 4th of July celebrations in Jaws in this film. It's the 100th anniversary of Antonio Bay. I, you know, I am getting like Jaws vibes and, and again, Jaws being such an important film to me as it is also to you guys. Yes, it, yes. It's also another thing that when I'm feeling nostalgia for this film, it's bringing together these other feelings from other films and, and just this whole sort of time period. And, you know, I think put a gun to my head maybe the 70s might be my favorite era of film Can you not imagine, only jaws um, but then you got the birds as well it's, it's yeah it wears its inspirations quite close to its chest i think yeah no i think you know, a lot of people have made the connection with the shooting locations that alfred hitchcock used in the birds because isn't it right that a lot of the locations were uh, reused for the fog i believe so yes yeah some of the scenes the scenes on the with the dock were the scenes from the birds yeah but um, going back a little bit, can you imagine Carpenter listening to the, what he was saying about the one scene where they actually f- film out on the ocean and he said he was down below decks throwing up? Can you yeah. imagine him <laughs> trying to film um, do Jaws? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he where they spent a hell of a lot more time at sea. <laughs> I know, I know. But uh, yes, yes. So uh, Carpenter has always used his inspirations, you know. Obviously, I mean, and uh, and he, 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 his heart is definitely much, you know, for view for everybody. What he loves. So that, you know, um, as he's already said, Rio Bravo and um, Attack on Pro- Precinct Thirteen. A lot of this was based on the Crawling Eye and X the Unknown. He, he used a little bit of these um, films in the nineteen fifties, in um, you know, to, as inspiration for The Fog. The Thing was obviously a remake of The Thing from Another World, and we. You know, the ending of um, The Fog is a callback to The Thing from Another World as well. So he obviously wears his influences on his sleeve, and he loves it. When Stevie Wayne is putting that warning out to... Yes, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah it's very much like the ending Watch the Skies. Hawks is, yeah, the Watch the Skies, yeah. Yeah. So guys, what do we think of the musical score for The Fog? Uh, I listen to it before bed more often than I care to admit. <laughs> it's... Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah it's part of that atmosphere like it's just it wouldn't have those qualities that we've been just discussing it would still have them but not nearly as effectively without without the score now i love it if you know if that opening credit scene is like you say 12 minutes long hayden i, I love a bit in the opening credits where it says score by john carpenter with electronic realization by dan wyman obviously 80 synth scores hadn't come into you know popularity at that point you know synthesized music was increasing in popularity uh, you know certainly in science fiction films in the 70s but it would hit its stride in the 80s but the, the electronic sort of synthesized music the carpenter would employ you know there's a lot more actual instrumental music as well like the piano plays very heavily in both Halloween and The Fog. You know, I, I've listened to the score in its entirety. I, I've actually listened to an expanded version, I think, yeah, which is 20 minutes longer than the running time of the film itself, so it must contain you know, a lot of unused musical cues. But if, if Halloween is one of the greatest horror film scores of all time, I certainly think that The Fog is up there. 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think because it is so uh, much riff-based rather than, you know, written for individual scenes, he said himself, he writes his music, he thinks of the riff and he plays it and he, you know, and then he fits it to the, the scenes afterwards, you know. Yeah. And But because of that, it also makes it a, a lot more listenable now. I think that's uh, an advantage it has. And anyway, I, I often when I'm writing, I'll put uh, my headphones in and I'll listen and that's one of my go-to tracks for um, for writing because it just sweeps me away. I would almost say, and it might be controversial to say this, I might prefer this over the Halloween track, the soundtrack. They both employ, they, as you say, Steve, that that repetition of the riff, like he picks a riff and he sort of uses that to, to anchor the entire soundtrack. Yeah, I, I think, Hayden, there's a lot less repetition in the fog. Now, if you listen mm. to that Halloween soundtrack, I'm pretty sure the version I've been listening to, um, it's not a long, it's not a long album. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, the version I've been listening to is 11 tracks and it's 33 minutes and 47 seconds. Now, if you compare mm. that then to the score for The Fog, which is an hour and 50 minutes, in that small amount of time, that 33 minute musical score, there is a heck of a lot of repetition in Halloween. It's just that the tracks of the day, I just love every single piece of music in that 33 minutes. And we're gonna come to this later when we go through our listener questions. But yeah, I don't think there's much between them. I'm not gonna argue that, you know, the the Fog is, is an inferior score to Halloween. I just think for me, the Halloween score is a little bit more iconic Whereas, oh, certainly yes. You know, and I can instantly like press a button in my in my brain, and that Halloween music is there, is playing. Uh, whereas with a fog, I'm I'm struggling to separate it from Christine and and other Carpenter scores. But then when I listen to it, it all switches back on. It's like, no, yeah, of course that's the fog. And it's just not as instinctive with me, but it's still I thoroughly enjoyed listening to the score recently in prep for this episode. It is just it's superb. And you just don't you just don't hear musical scores with that much character, which are that distinctive anymore. Certainly not in horror films, I think. I think a lot and of And the film that uh, the version that's on the film is the second one he wrote because he it is, yeah. one originally for the first draft that they put together. So he had to write a whole new score for it. So I'm wondering if maybe some of the cues from that original score are what makes the this you know, the soundtrack 20 minutes longer maybe there's a few of those in there as well yeah and Carpet is cited didn't he um, that his, his love of Bernard Herrmann as an inspiration yes you know Bernard Herrmann scored Psycho one of the greatest horror films of all time and there's connective tissue there because obviously Janet Lee is in this film you know, Carpenter, you know, upon this initial release, it was a big financial hit again for Carpenter, but it just wasn't as critically well-received as Halloween. But it's since, you know, long since grown... You know, I don't even, I don't even want to say a strong cult following. I'd say it's, it's beyond that of a cult horror film. Because certainly when I was growing up, that um, that VHS cover of Jamie Lee Curtis pushing the door closed with a hand coming out, that, 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 was, that was always one that kind of stuck out to me. Yeah, it's a great poster. I suppose it's not a cult horror film, but would you call it a cult classic? I don't know. Yeah, you could say that a lot about a lot of John Carpenter films. Um, true. You, you look at the thing and the fact that that was just a complete disaster upon its release. I, I would no longer... I, I think the thing went through a period of becoming a cult classic, but then I think mm. it's transcended that now, and I just think it is an out-and-out undisputed classic. Yeah. People don't talk about The Fog as much as Halloween or The Thing um, as you know these days, though, I don't think. So I don't think it's got that... Same kind of uh, kudos amongst uh, film fans and horror fans as those other two because they are undisputed classics, aren't they? I agree, I agree. Yeah, so maybe, yeah, maybe from that point of view, it is leaning more towards a cult classic than an outright classic like some of Carpenter's other films. Yeah, yeah. One thing we haven't discussed, if you don't mind us going back, is Carry on. Hal Halbrook himself. 
Yeah, Hal Hardwick. Yes. And we're talking about the cinematography and the um, the the way, you know the film that he was it uh, was that was used to film it. How about that scene when he he steps out of the darkness and he uh, frightens Janet Lee? Yes. Now they had to go back in and they had to alter the color timing on that scene yes, because they did, yes. yeah, you could see him in the darkness initially, and he just gave away the fact. But yeah, he comes from nowhere. And, That's fantastic. Yeah, and and Carpenter always couples it with these little musical stabs, doesn't yeah. he? Like very similar to the ones in Halloween. It's one of those moments where he comes out of the dark, and I'm, my critical brain thinks, "Why did he even do that?" <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. He just <laughs> didn't you hear yeah, it coming yes, in? He does get the um, a jump yeah. of people, you know? So yeah. So, as we wrap things up on the fog, guys, I'll start with you, Hayden. Where roughly would you rank this in your list of favourite horror films and then your list of favourite John Carpenter films? um, List of John Carpenter films. As I I think as I alluded to earlier, it's... I haven't actually seen a lot of his 90s films, which I've heard take quite a dip in quality. So most of my knowledge of Carpenter is his late 70s and all his 80s films. Yeah. And on that scale, it's it's fairly low, but not because, again, it's because I just have such high regard for films like Escape from New York, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, etc. Yeah, I, I want to say it's, it's sort of low without actually criticizing it <laughs> um as for horror films again yeah it's it's fairly high like I, I wouldn't know where to rank it but it's one of those films that i do revisit you know at least once or twice a year i will be um from here on out i think just because it has that effect on me it, it sort of as i said earlier it washes over me it has that atmosphere it, it's almost like like a warm mug of hot chocolate before bed you know like it it doesn't scare me and i think that's probably where i'm tripping up here is that because it doesn't scare me, I have a hard time ranking it as a horror film against other horror films. But that's not to say that I don't love it. So, so that's I'm kind of going. When you've got it. somebody making so many great movies, you th- just by because you're not saying it's it's one of the best, you feel like you putting it down somehow. But in fact, you're not. You know, I mean, it's just because they are whole um, filmography is just so good that even something lower on the list is very very high up. Yeah, I you know Car- Carpenter might actually be on my sort of Mount Rushmore favorite directors. Even though from '94 onwards, after he made In the Mouth of Madness, he didn't make a film that I like at all. It's it's everything prior to that, you know, from 1976 after Assault on Precinct 13 up to In the Mouth of Madness. It's that period for me that is just his magical period. It's just the greatest hits list. Like it is. They Live, uh, Christine, like he, the Starman, just goes on. You know the thing. He he was just prolific, but then he just completely from the mid nineties onwards. It, it just he, he just couldn't do it anymore. I don't know why. Uh, you know, he he couldn't continue as just this amazing director and progress and evolve and and. But then I'm just really grateful for the films that he left us. And I got to say it. Maybe a lot of it is nostalgia. The fact that it is one of the first John Carpenter films that I saw. But it might be in my top five favorite Carpenter films. I. I Having not sat down and written that list out, as much as I've always it's a hard loved, list. I've always loved Big Trouble in Little China, but when I think you know, gun to the head moment, which film have I got more of a fondness for? I might, if Neil is me saying this, he's <laughs> going to be spitting fire. But I just it's might hard. have a little bit more love for the fog than Big Trouble in Little China. I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. It's just like that warm comfort blanket of a film. It, it, I don't, I don't know, I don't. Know. It's, it's, it's very point. different to those because in those other films, there's often you got like Kurt Russell who just stands out and is iconic, whereas this 
film doesn't have an iconic performance per se. Like everyone's great in it, yeah. but it's it's quite different in that in that sense. Oh, I agree. I agree. I think that John Carpenter is the standout in this film. You know, more than yeah, he, he, Jamie Lee Curtis. I think is in um, Halloween, and you got uh, Kurt Russell and everything. But in in the fog, I think it is John Carpenter. Yeah. So, Steve, uh, do you want to give us your closing thoughts then on your favourite John Carpenter film and why you think it's perfect fodder for this Halloween episode? Well, first of all, you know, when I say it's my favourite, there's, as we've already said, there's fine margins between them, you know, because everything from, as you said, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, you know, which is a fantastic film, is so the it's got so much urgency and tension in it, and of course, how many films would you know they take they'd actually kill a 10 year old little girl you yeah know. the opening shocking yeah, yeah. It's shocking really really shocking but right up until um into the mouth of madness which is you know really really great underrated film i don't think he did a bad film in, in they're all really really excellent and some I don't of them think he did you know, Halloween, I, I can't think of a bad thing. film that he made yeah all these films are the very very top of the game the only reason i say the fog and the only reason i picked that one out is because it's the film that i think i can go to more than all the others yeah you know and and i can relax with it i mean you can't always relax with the thing it's no matter how good, great it is it's got a different kind of atmosphere it's got yeah. different kind of tension but with the fog i can you know it's a great um old-fashioned yarn that they can just relax to yeah and it, you know there's a moral tale i suppose at his core isn't it and you could argue that blake isn't the bad guy blake is just the one that is getting revenge on people who did him wrong yeah, Whereas yeah. with The Thing, as much as it is a perfect film, there's no feel-good factor there at all, is there? It's very it's bleak. Not. And, you know, it's, it's part of Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, isn't it? Well, the whole idea of The Thing is to make you question every character. Yeah. Whereas in The Fog, you don't have to do that. The Fog does have one of Carpenter's most iconic shots, and that's all the pirates and all the ghosts in the in the church. It's such, such a brilliant, oh, brilliant, brilliant shot in that yes, film. Yeah. And then the... The red eyes, which were, were created using Scotch Bright, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's such a simple idea, isn't it? Oh, and we forgot yeah. to mention Rob Boutine, obviously, because you know he That's was brought right. on to do the you know that worm face effect on the you know the pickups when Stevie is being attacked on the top of the yeah. uh, of the lighthouse. But then he also ended up playing Blake in the end of the film. And obviously, Boutine, you know, one of the all-time great special effects artists, was would go on two years later to do maybe the best effects work I've ever seen in Carpenter's The Thing. Funny little story though. That worm face mask the Boutine made later found its way onto the floor of his workshop where it was subsequently eaten by his pit bull. Yes, yeah, he was there. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic, isn't it? Oh. Uh, to think how much that would sell for today if he was still um, you know, around. Yeah, yeah. Right, so there you go. That is John Carpenter's The Fog, our uh, pick for our Halloween film for 2020. Couldn't really pick a film scarier than 2020, could we, guys? <laughs> no, no, whatever film we chose is never going to be. Nothing's going to be as terrifying as the year that we're all having to endure. We chose one of the more comforting horror films, which is probably yes, probably fitting. Perfect, yeah, perfect comfort food for a, a nightmare of a year. I th- yeah, we could have done um, favourite Carpenter films as a segment this episode. I think we're going to leave that maybe for a later date after we've covered a few more of his films individually in episodes. So we put out a request on Twitter and Facebook for any horror and Halloween season related listener questions. And we've got to say, guys and girls, thank you very much for the response. It's been overwhelming. You know, we only put the tweet and the Facebook message out two days ago, but we've had an amazing response. First uh, is Stephen Simpson. 
uh, who's appeared uh, with Steve and I on a previous episode and is uh, you know a huge friend of Film 89. You can follow him on Twitter at SteveU7. He asks, what is your go-to horror flick to watch on Halloween? Uh, oh, you know, I like the classics I do. I'd probably go with something like The Innocents because that is just so scary or uh, maybe go back to the Universal era and um, Frankenstein, you know, James Wills, Frankenstein. Those are always my go-to movies for just about anything. Yeah. It doesn't need to be Halloween. Yeah. Good call on Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. They make a great double bill, especially on horror um on Halloween. I'm probably I'd probably lean towards the classics as well, but more of the uh the sci-fi horror, so alien or the thing. Those those are the kinds of films that are just endlessly fascinating to me. So a little bit you'd almost call it generic at this point, but you can't really go wrong. Yeah, they are sort of like your evergreen horror films. But the last couple of years, I, I've always made a point of every every year on Halloween, I'll watch a different film. No surprise, my go-to one is always going to be Carpenter's original Halloween. Every time we get to the first of October, now that music just starts playing in my head. You know, when I'm walking the dog late at night, it, it's playing in my head. It's actually you know, it, it's it's my favorite score this time of year. It's one of my absolute all-time favorite horror films. But I think the last time I watched that on Halloween was maybe about three years ago. <laughs> it was one Halloween, not too long back, where I deliberated for so long over what horror film to watch. In the end, I just randomly flicked my thumb over Netflix and thought, whatever lands on, I'm going to watch. <laughs> and I ended up watching Annie Hall. <laughs> I have no idea why. <laughs> I watched a Woody Allen film on Halloween. I thought, do you know what? <laughs> Fuck it. I can't decide what to watch. So I'm just going to watch anything. And well, that's, that's one it. of my favourite comedies of all time, I'd say. That's a great choice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Halloween is my go-to choice. Uh, and then I think the following year after I last watched Halloween, I watched Halloween 2 from 1981, which is really good sequel. I, I really like that one. Then, oh, what was it? The most recent. Uh, it was, I think it was Child's Play. <laughs> I rewatched Child's Play. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's okay. It doesn't hold up that well. And oh, I th- this year... Because of you, Steve, I've rewatched the, the Fog and thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, there you go. I'm going to try and watch uh, Halloween two and three this year in um, as we lead up to Halloween because it's, I haven't seen them for such a long, long time. Well, my, my, so those are the two that I'm going to try and watch yeah. this year. As I've said before, my biggest regret since we started this podcast in 2018, because we had a bit of a tight schedule around about this time of year, we weren't able to cover the original Halloween when the 2018 Halloween sequel came out because I think that would have been a fantastic episode. I I really enjoyed that sequel. I went in with absolutely no expectations at all, and I really enjoyed it. We're definitely going to do an episode on Halloween at some point. I think it'd be really good to cover the second film as well. And a hell of a lot of our listeners have said that we need to do an episode on Halloween 3, and I'd certainly be up for that. Well, i got to thank Steve Simpson for putting me onto the uh, soundtrack of that, because I'd never heard it before, and it's fantastic. Isn't it? It's absolutely brilliant. It's so much fun. As much as I like Halloween 2... I don't like the score for that film because I think it's too synthesised. Whereas Halloween Three Seasons of the Witch has got a fantastic score. It's so much fun it is. You can put it. It's it. It doesn't sound scary. I don't think. But I tell no. you what, I, I can't help but it just go for the ride with it. Anyway, I've played it quite a few times since in the last two weeks when he he um, mentioned it, and uh, I, I just love it. No, I agree. Okay, next up, Amy Green on Facebook asks, which iconic horror film character is your favourite and why? Oh, I'll just get out of the way. It's Michael Myers. 
it just is. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's just the simplicity of it, the fact that there's nothing supernatural about him, even though you could argue, how is he so invincible? He's just this dark character that's completely devoid of any empathy, of any emotion. And from that point of view, we would see it again copied with characters like Jason Voorhees. But that kind of character, like, you know, Norman Bates was, you know, he was mentally ill. You know, he was, he was a, a, you know, he had psychotic tendencies, but there was, there was humanity to him. With Michael Myers, there is no reasoning with him. You know, I, I just think that that original film, it'll never be top for me. It's my favorite, you know, film for this time of year. Probably my favorite horror character. Yeah, I'd have to say Michael Myers. Okay, if I if you don't mind, I'm going to choose two, right? One old school because I've already mentioned him. Frankenstein, the Fra- Frankenstein, the Bride of Frankenstein, is look is so iconic, is so fantastic, and I love him. But if I was going to pick a more modern one because he's so much fun, he's revolting, he's disgusting, he's scary. I'd say Freddy Krueger. I love the Nightmare on Elm Street films. I know they're not all scary, and they a lot of them are just more for laughs than anything else. And how imaginative you can dispatch a few people, but I just love Freddy. I really, really do love Freddy. You know, he's everything you want from a, a horror bad guy. So you you stole my first pick, Steve. And for a second, my heart stopped because I thought you were going to say my second one as well. Um, yeah, Frankenstein's monster, almost for every reason, inverse of what um, you said, Sky, about Michael Myers. Because he's actually not scary, but he's scary to everyone else. He's, he's very sympathetic and your heart kind of breaks for him. At least, I don't know, he... he Perhaps he terrified audiences more back then. I, I believe he did. Um, but today I look at him and I, I just feel empathy for him. Um, but my second would be Hannibal Lecter, which is a, kind of an obvious choice. But I think the way in which he's been portrayed multiple times has um, influenced that. You know, obviously there's the Silence of the Lambs, but there's also Michael Mann's Manhunter. And then more recently, the the TV series in which Mads Mikkelsen played the role. So that's it's one of those roles that has been taken on by you know a handful of people and and they've managed to nail it almost every time yeah what i love about him is that he's he's yes he's scary and he's terrifying but he's so controlled a lot of bad guys in the horror films you know they, they are mad you know if you take freddy for example there's no control whatsoever but uh hannibal lecter everything he does it's thought through and it's deliberated on and is done for a purpose and that is very very scary you're forced to like him and feel very uneasy about liking him, but you can't yes. help it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Chris Palmer on Twitter at Christian Palmer asks, who would you say is the most consistent horror creative currently working today? Steve, I'll start with you. And I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I'm going to say Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> um, you know, it's an obvious choice. And I, I know he doesn't only do horror, but when he does horror, whether it's the shape of water or Crimson Peak. And I tell you what, I know Crimson Peak wasn't the most loved film when it was first released, but I think it's fantastic. It's it's a wonderful film. It's got the scares in it, it's got the thrills in it, and it's so gorgeous to look at. There's so many great horror films out today, but I think that he is, and he always will be my go-to guy for anything supernatural or paranormal or perhaps anything offbeat. He is my go-to guy. He's one of the few directors who I will, anytime he's got a film out, I'm going to search it out and I'm going to go to the cinema to watch him. Now, I thought you were going to actually... Well, I, I've read that question. Is the, the most consistent horror creative currently working the non-specific to film? I thought you would have said Stephen King. Oh, oh, I was thinking mm. of just film directors and filmmakers, I was. Obviously Stephen King, yes, because 
you know, every, you all know how much I love Stephen King and his fil, uh, recent books with his uh, The Institute or Doctor Sleep, and you know, they they are fantastic. And um, you know, I would recommend so many books. In fact, yesterday I finished listening to the audiobook of Under the Dome. Now I've read the book before, but I thought it was so great. I had to watch it. I had to listen to it as well. He, he does characters better than just about any writer. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's you know he's absolutely prolific, and you know you think in our lifetime as much as we said before, Steve, on the um, on the on the Shining episode uh, last year that a lot of his adaptations um, don't you know don't end up working very well at all. But you look at you know the the amount that he has contributed, not just to horror but to film in general, you know you know via his books and from a point of view as an author, you know, he's just absolutely prolific. Oh, he, he writes about three thousand words a day, I think he says. I know that's that's you know to anybody who have never sat down and tried to write that might not sound like a lot. Yeah. But that's a huge amount. It's, it's it's ten pages, I think, something like that. But it's a huge amount to actually get out day in day out and keep the quality. You know, I'm going to assume well. you've read this, Steve. But um, I'm in the middle of of misery at the moment. I'm about halfway oh, yes. through. Yes. There's, I don't think I've had a more horrifying reading experience than when the protagonist is forced to burn his the only copy of his um, completed manuscript. It's a writer's nightmare. um, Stephen King, you know, I mean, yes, he does the ghosts and the ghouls really, really well, but he makes his character so believable that when something like that happens, that is a full tragedy that affects him deep down. He makes tension. He makes writing tension and suspense seem so easy. It's incredible. Of his new books, so one I would definitely recommend is uh, Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, and that's a huge book. I tell you why. It's one book. I, I didn't even want to get to the uh, supernatural, well, it's not supernatural sci-fi kind of ending because I really enjoyed spending so much time with these characters. If it was another five, six hundred pages, I would have happily gone along with it. Is is that the one that did HBO make an ad- adaptation of that? They did with um, oh, James Franco. Name? Yes, that's him. Yes. Yeah. I haven't seen that series though, but the book. Mm, neither. I would highly recommend that book. It's fantastic. Okay. Next question: uh, Stephen Poole via email asks. Was there a particular horror film that you saw when you were too young that left you emotionally scarred? Mine was the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I saw for the first time in the early 2000s when I was 10 or 11. It's not that bloody, funny enough, as we've just said, but the sustained tension just ruined me. It's now one of my all-time favourites. So films, horror films that we saw when we were too young that left a mark on us. Hayden? I don't think there is one, but I'll, I'll embarrass my, myself and say that uh, <laughs> the uh, Sleeping Beauty gave me nightmares when I was a toddler. Oh, God. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> the villain turning into the dragon just haunted my nightmares. Really? Yeah. That's, that's my favorite animated Disney film. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, oh, I love it, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. It's just a word sure, of art. I'm sure but... if I watched it now, I would destroy any memory of that having horrified me, but yeah. it's been a long time. Ah, Steve? Uh, yeah, it's not a film. It was a TV um, series, a mini-series. It, and we, and we know we already mentioned Stephen King. It was Salem's Lot. Yeah. There's a moment in that film which even today I can't open a window if it's dark outside. And that's when Danny Glick, who's uh, happened to become a vampire, and he floats up to the window and he's tapping it, asking, uh, I can't remember the boy's name inside now, but asking, you know, let me in. He commands it. <laughs> and it's terrifying uh, you know, it's the great the series itself. If the two um, two episodes um, with David Soul in the lead, 
great great series really really scary at times and the the master which is completely different from the book he is so iconic you know the blue face with the bald head and those teeth just just like Nosferatu um, back in the 1920s but that scene when Danny knocks the window even today if it's dark outside I don't like to open the curtains (laughs) (laughs) so it really did leave his mark on you (laughs) it really did leave his mark yeah I I can see somebody coming up floating up to the window now and if I lived on the penthouse of a 50-story building, I still would not open the curtains. (laughs) You reminded me of that feeling as a kid when you you go to the toilet and then you sprint back to your bedroom in the dark because you're convinced something's chasing you. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Well, I've I've narrowed mine down to three. The first one, well, the first two, actually, we've talked about previously. The first one was Jaws, and as I've said on our Jaws commentary and previously you know, on other episodes, I, I was quite young when I saw Jaws. And it just absolutely terrified me. Even to this day, the bit where Ben Gardner's head just pops out of that hole in the boat, it's just the timing of it. It's, it's the timing do you have of the a, editing. Do you have a problem with beaches, Guy? No, I haven't got a problem with the water, with the sea. Um, uh, you know, I've actually got fond memories from my childhood of, of just spending loads of time you know, down at the sea with with my family you know when they'd be water skiing going out on boats and stuff like that I, i'd love to go and live you know down by the coast i absolutely would love to um so no it, it's not it, you know any sort of nightmares or whatever and fear it was causing me sort of you know subsided maybe after a couple of years um the next one is poltergeist that one my god i, I was way too young to have watched that but you know as steve will remember back in the early 80s films like that got away with a pg rating now how the hell can you have a scene of a guy even though he is hallucinating or 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 like the subject of this haunting in a mirror peeling his face off you know down to the bone and and it's just absolutely terrifying in a pg film it completely messed me up it is and I, i think that for many of us poltergeist was the gateway drug to horror as well for a lot of us yeah you know because it was such a big film and it was a blockbuster yeah, yeah, not just yeah. you know um, what we'd you know normally associate horror with, but this one was, you know, up there with the the Gremlins and the Back to the Futures and all these you know great films that were produ- been produced at the time. It was a massive match of a hit, and for many many people of our generation, that was the gateway into horror. I think. But it's also again going back to that thing of it being a supernatural film, and that is my weakness. That is my horror weakness. Is supernatural stuff that scares the shit out of me. <laughs> I mean, you can even go on to talk about just moments in films, even if they're not necessarily horrors. Like, like you're thinking the the face me- the face melting moment at the end of Raiders, or you know the dogs in the thing, and they all have something in common, and that's that they're, they're these practical effects, yeah, creations of the last century. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, again, you know, we, we've talked the length about effects and practical effects. It, you'll always get that tangible feel that certainly for the most part with CGI, we're just not getting. Yes, you know, there, there's been some amazing CGI. And, and and like we said on Jurassic Park episode, Hayden, the best special effects are ones which utilise different techniques and pick the one which is best for that particular effect that they're trying to achieve. You know, if CGI mm. can't do it, then go back to practical. If practical just can't give you the amount of scale that you need and, it, and it's just going to cost too much, then go for CG. But yeah, you know, practical effects, when done properly, are just, for me, always going to trump CG. Ah, right. Good old J. Blake Fischera, uh, who appeared on, well, on our horror special, where we, um, yeah, we talked about Rio Bravo, and then the episode uh, made a complete 90-degree turn, and, you know, the rest of the episode with this huge deep dive into horror. Blake uh, is, is the author of Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. Uh, we do urge you to check out that book. It's absolutely brilliant, where he interviews a load of horror composers. You can follow him on Twitter, at Scored to Death, 
Blake, he's, he's asked us two questions, but, you know, we'll allow him that. He says, which horror films, if any, have genuinely scared you? Not a jump scare, but genuinely scared you. Hayden, don't say Beauty and the Beast, please. Come on, be a bit more imaginative. A horror film must have genuinely scared you. The Little Mermaid. Yeah, The Little Mermaid, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I'm not going to admit that one. Um, But it's going to go against everything I feel about horror because what I love most about horror is the the subtlety and the implied horror and the, the mood. But... I remember when I was a kid, I would watch, you know, my mum my would borrow from the video store the Saw movies. Yeah, there were yeah. still video stores when I was a kid. I would sit at the back of the room watching and the idea of, of being forced to cause bodily harm to yourself just horrified me. So I'll probably have to go with that one. Even though I don't, these days, like I don't go near films like that where it's that the gore is the primary focus because I don't find that that makes for effective filmmaking or horror. But maybe that's because I was terrified of Saw when I was a kid. <laughs> Who knows? Steve? I'm going to go back to one I've mentioned a couple of times already and that's uh, The Innocence from the very opening scene when uh, during the titles when you've just got Deborah Kerr praying there's no music you've just got her praying and you can hear the children and then um, you know later it's all in uh, black and white fantastic um, camera work and there's uh, a few scenes which even thinking about it now you know scares me and again there's a scene with the window I've got this, I've got this thing about being scared about windows where Deborah Kerr is, you know, she sees something in the distance and she's hiding behind a curtain and she thinks she can see a ghost and then a a face appears directly behind her. And it's so scary and the atmosphere is just, it's it's thick with fear and doubt and um, it's a wonderful film and it is really, really scary. That's my. That's the film I would tell anybody who's listening to this now. You know, obviously, if you haven't seen The Fog, go out and watch The Fog, but if you haven't seen The Innocence, get out and see that as quick as you can mine's a recent one because all of the films that terrified me as a kid um they, they just don't scare me anymore because I've, I've watched them so many times now that i just yes i do get a little bit anxious with our ben gardner scene just because of the time in the editing is so perfect but a recent film that has just messed me up is from 2007 and it's again playing on my fear of the paranormal suitably enough is paranormal activity I, I know, Steve, I probably, it's not a film that would probably scare you. It absolutely fucking terrified me. I just. It's very, it's very um, effective. I only saw it um, again for the first, for uh, only the second time I'd seen it. And mm. I saw it about, about three weeks ago, and there are really good moments in it, yeah. It, it's, it's not so much the execution, the execution is very well done. It's the concept. That's what terrifies me. It's the fact that this demon has fixated with this this girl and and, and stayed in her life and, and watched her from up in the loft. And even as I'm saying it now, I'm literally, I've got goosebumps. <laughs> it's the fact that this evil force can just become fixated on you and just be hell-bent on destroying you. It's that. That aspect of it is the bit that absolutely just terrified me. And um, I've watched it once. It scared the shit out of me. I'll never watch it again. <laughs> That's not, not not that far from something like It Follows, which again is is that same sort of yeah. um, concept. Yeah, no, It it Follows, I think, is it's one of my favourite, certainly one of my favourite horror films of the last 10 years. It's got an amazing John Carpenter vibe. I just love the fact mm. that, you know, we're never given any in-your-face sort of exposition as to why this force or what it is and why it's doing what it does. It just does what it does and we're never told why. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. I, I just love It Follows. Yeah, it is a scary film. It's got a brilliant soundtrack too, which yeah. I guess that synth synth driven soundtrack that again gives you that sort of John Carpenter um, impression. Yeah. 
Well, um, um, Sky, I don't mean to psychoanalyze you here, but two of the films <laughs> you mentioned, Poltergeist and Paranormal Activity, yeah. the two attacking the basic domestic family unit or everyday mm-hmm. life, you know? So is that something that, uh, you know... Yes, it is. It is. No, it genuinely is. And it, it, I think it goes back maybe to the whole, the whole thing of why haunted house films get to you. It's because the the house is your domain. It's your castle. It's your your safe yes, place. Yes. The place as the place as a parent, you want to make safe for your children. And when that place becomes subject to an outside force that you can't tackle and you can't control, that is the thing. I think I find most terrifying. There's a, another great film that um, does that, which I've actually reviewed for the site, and that's Under the Shadow, which hasn't, you know, a lot of people haven't seen that, but, you know, that is just about one woman and her child stuck in an apartment which has been haunted by this djinn, and it's also during the Iran Iraq war, it's set in Iran, and she's just by herself trying mm-hmm. to bring up the child, and, you know, that is really, really scary because of that again, you know, this domestic life, being attacked by these unseen forces, you know, an unknowable force of them. Yeah. Yeah, as I said, Blake, uh, he's been allowed to ask us two questions. And his next one is, and of course, what are your all-time favourite horror film scores? Well, there's quite a few that, I mean, when I, apart from the John Carpenter ones like The Fog, which I do love, I would also mention, uh, I love the end title theme to Poltergeist. It's so beautiful, it's so lyrical, and then it ends with the laughter, which, you know, some children laughing, which could be innocent, and yet it's actually really, really scary. There's something about children laughing, which is very, very scary sometimes. And the other one I would mention, because it's something I've, it depends on the mood I'm in, but I would say the original Nightmare on Elm Street I think it's Charles Bernstein. Mm. That, you know, it's very much of his age. It's very much in the 80s. It's got that kind of 80s synth kind of big drum sound sometimes. But it's, you know, it's got a real good driving beat to it and driving force to it. And I, I find that really, really good to it, especially when I'm writing, because that's when I listen to a lot of this, these soundtracks. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the same well again and say probably Jerry Goldsmith's Alien soundtrack or, again, the It Follows I, I often lean towards the the synth synth ones as well, but you can't really go past Goldsmith. He d- also did the o- the Omen score, which was brilliant. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we covered that in our Goldsmith episode. Yeah, brilliant. Um, have a guess what mine is, guys. Halloween. <sighs> Halloween. Yeah, yeah this is a surprise. <laughs> I was actually going to say Jaws. Sorry. Yeah, I got Halloween's my favorite, and if you're going to call Psycho a horror film, then Bernard Herrmann's score for mm. that is just amazing. Jaws, obviously, and yeah, I've got Jerry Goldsmith's score for Alien, as you picked, Hayden, and Carpenter's score for The Thing. All good picks. All fantastic picks. All good yeah. picks. Uh, last one, obviously, guys, uh, we all get to look at the questions in advance, but this one came in quite last minute, but we're going to include it anyway. Fran on Twitter, you can follow at Fran Buff. She says, two of my favourites, Halloween and Aliens. The Shatner mask is such a big part of that feeling, the dead eyes, the expressionless face. And the alien is obviously this indescribable thing when you first see it. What other horror costumes, makeup, or villains' looks have scared you the most? Right, because you guys haven't had time to prep for that one, I'm going to go for mine. I'm going to go for Pinhead. When you just, you know, the first time I ever saw him on a VHS cover and, you know, his overall look and appearance or whatever, I'd never seen anything like that. It was just completely... I think it was such a... It was so impactful that they just used that image, didn't they, on subsequent covers? Just, you know, the, the same thing. I think they, they actually reused the same image of Doug Bradley in his pinhead makeup on the cover for the third film. 
that he's, they just changed the background to New York because it was just so iconic. But yeah, that, that's definitely for me the one that, that stands out the most. My first thought was Pinhead as well. One that I really loved, and it was from the the second Conjuring movie from a few years ago now. I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you have seen the film or if you will remember the character called the Crooked Man. He was sort of this, he's like this tall figure in a, you know, like a red pinkish suit. He has like a top hat at one point at least, and he has um, a hook for an arm, I think. And I just really loved that character design. It didn't so much scare me. I just thought it was a really fun design. I often go towards, I guess I find the most fascinating characters in regards to this question are the ones that are like almost human, but just there's something off about them. So in the case of the Crooked Man, it's these like sharp, bared teeth and he's he's just this wildly tall, long-limbed figure. But other ones that match that description, they're, they're slipping past me at the moment. But that's, in general, that's what I lean towards. Steve? Uh, yeah, I've got a, uh, got a couple. One I would go back again i've already mentioned it, that's frankenstein you know it's not scary today but when i was a kid when i used to you know first watch these films you know i started watching the uh, universal horror films back when i was probably barely a teen you know so back then it was quite uh, scary um in fact we used to there was a double bill on um, on bbc in the nights and we could watch two horror films and my mother used to let us stay up and watch them as well it doesn't matter what they were we used to stay up and watch the two of them and that's where i discovered a lot of these films the other one I'm going to mention is from another film I've mentioned tonight, and that's from Salem's Lot, and that's The Master. It's uh, he is that is such a scary look. I mean, he's got the the blue face. He's a, um, the vampire. It's very much from Nosferatu, Nosferatu yeah, the, uh, yeah, uh, the Murnau version yeah. of Nosferatu. But there's a scene in there when uh, they they open up the coffin and he's lying there and you know his, his back teeth and you know he's so scary. And then he just opens his eyes and just looks. He just moves his head a little bit. And that is just so scary, and that look is just so iconic. I, I, that'll always stay with me. And if you know, if I could just get a T-shirt with that, I would be very, very happy. Okay, and the final one we've had is from good old Moose Matson. Now, as Moose tends to do on Twitter, I think his thumbs must get tired quickly because you get into a tax <laughs> conversation with him, and then very quickly he'll just start sending you little videos of himself. So on, let me just see if I can do this now. I'm actually going to play... Moose's question for us into the microphone and just let me know guys if you're picking it up okay. Well maybe I do have a question. You know when it comes to horror movies uh, Is that coming I don't really it? appreciate yeah. jump scares anymore. It's it's, uh, it's, it's too much and, and you see it coming from a mile away. It's like the music pinks up and, and, and everything's going and he's about to go around the corner. You know there's going to be a ah! jump scare. But then and nowadays they're like oh we're going to fool them. We know better. We're going to fool them. Here comes a jump scare. Oh, it's nothing. Oh, it was all right. Ah! And then it comes from the other side. We still see that coming from a mile away. But a good scare that you've actually been, you know, jumped out of your seat in a movie when you absolutely did not see it coming. Have you experienced that? Can you think of anything? So there you go. Good old Moose. <laughs> yeah, you can follow him on Twitter at Moose Matson. But yeah, that's his question then. Which jump scare has affected us the most? Uh, you know what it's going to be for me, guys. It's, it's going to be Ben Gardner's head popping out of the boat and jaws. <laughs> yeah, it's always that one. It's always been that one. It always will. I got two that pop to my head at the moment, right? The first one is the very end of Carrie with the hand, hand. sticking out. 
you know, and that yeah. was one of the very first, I think, jump scares as well that, you know, and that was terrifying. But there's another one, and it's from um, an Australian film from 1978, I think it was, called Patrick. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's, I know, it's, it. it's about a, a uh, somebody who is a, in bed. He's in a, I think he's in a coma or um, semi-coma, something like that. And he starts controlling people with his mind. And there's a scene to, right towards the end when everything, you think everything is sorted, everything is, you know, finally come to um, an end. And the camera is on Patrick in the bed, lying down there. And then he just opens his eyes. Just like that. That's all it is. Frightened the living crap of me. <laughs> I, I uh... jumped out of my out of the chair. And, yeah. So that's one. It's an Australian film, um, Hayden. So you've got no excuses. <laughs> um, I can't think of any, at least in film. But I've been playing the video game called Until Dawn. I don't know if either of you heard of it. I've been playing that again. And the person I've been playing it with can attest to the fact that it has made me jump quite a few times. It's very, this particular game, it's got a very B-movie quality about it. You know, the characters are intentionally, you know, they're all teenagers and and they go up to a haunted sort of mansion on the top of a hill and there's a supernatural presence going on. And it really leans into its cliches. And it keeps getting me with its jump scares. And I see him coming a mile away, but when you put a controller in your hand and you're in control of the character, it just does something else to you. <laughs> yeah, speaking of games, Hayden, one of the ones that used to scare the crap out of me was Resident Evil I knew Evil you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, any time that the liquor appeared, or if you were playing, uh, you'd play the game through, and then you'd get to play it again from the other character's point of view when you were being chased throughout the game by Mr. X. Any time the Mr. X made an appearance, they'd always time it to the point where you'd be least expecting it. And yeah, have you looked at, at any of the any footage from the the remake that came out? Was that last year? No, uh, I'm just going through one of my probably decade long periods mm. again where I just don't play games simply because I haven't yeah. got time. So there you go. Uh, thank you very much for everyone who sent us in listener questions. Apologies to the ones that we just couldn't answer, but we did. You know, we had a load sent to us, and as always, it's just picking and choosing, mostly at random. You know, we always like to give everyone a fair shot. But you know, thank you for Moose uh, for that video question he sent us, and he kind of. Um, made his unofficial debut on the podcast hey. welcome moose <laughs> yeah. yeah we're definitely gonna get him on for a future episode he, he's just uh, he's awesome we all he's we definitely got character going by that voiceover so he's more than welcome to join us sometime definitely so we'll uh, we'll wrap things up hayden what are your plans going to be this halloween what's going to be your film of choice Ooh, i don't know it's my birthday almost coincides with halloween so i'll, I'll pick something i'll probably end up going back to my same well which is you know something science fiction um although maybe after this episode i'm i'm feeling a bit of a another john john carpenter hit um which comes around probably twice a month at this point so maybe i'll watch halloween maybe i'll watch the thing or watch one of the others you haven't seen like prince of darkness or in the I've mouth seen of prince madness of darkness or... but i haven't no i haven't seen in the mouth of madness so that is excellent maybe i'll chase that down that's got a great performance by sam neil that's completely out there yeah. and if i if i can um, if if I can track it down, just on the you know the fact that you know I I, I should have already seen this one, but I Steve I I'm sorry I still haven't seen the Innocence, so yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, if I it know. wasn't for um, this um, damn virus, I you could borrow a copy of me. <laughs> oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> oh. Well, I'm gonna try and watch uh, Halloween two and three because I haven't. It's been so many years. It's been decades since I've seen them, and I saw yeah. Halloween recently. I saw that about five six weeks ago. Um, although I, you know, I've seen that uh, fairly regularly, but uh, no, I'm going to try and see parts two and three. Have you never seen? Yes, the I have one? seen it. 
but it's been yeah. it's been decades you know it's been such a long yeah. time there's a f- yeah, there's a few little problems with it where you sort of you question a few of the things that happen, but the fact that it just picks up immediately after the first film, I just love it. I must have, I must admit to you guys, I the first Halloween is the only Halloween I've seen. Oh, you've got, you've got Hayden for for completely different reasons. You've got to see two yes. and three. <laughs> Two, because it's a continuation of the first one. It's like as if you've just seen the first half of the film and then the second one tells you what happens afterwards. And Halloween 3, just because it's batshit crazy and is nothing to do with Michael Myers. And yeah, you've got to see that one. Maybe I'll try and chase those down for this Halloween then, guys. Honestly, Halloween 3. Steve, go on. How would you best describe it? I can say it has been a long time since I have seen it. But yeah, I remember sitting down expecting one thing expecting uh, Mike Myers and uh, it is nuts you know the um mm-hmm. I, uh, it, what i remember is a lot of pumpkin heads is that right and yeah the uh, adverts. yeah it's, um, yeah a lot of oh, the advert right you, should we should we just not say anything to no, Hayden no, about the advert okay okay, okay. <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> Hayden definitely put that one you know put those two high on your list um i i'll i'll promise to try and watch the innocents and yeah steve you're going to rewatch I two and three yeah? try and do yes awesome Okay, Steve, where can people find you on social media if they want to hit you up and uh, chat to you about film or TV oh, or whatever? the best place is always Twitter, and it's at Welsh Bluesman. Cool. Hayden, if people want to hit you up and take the piss out of why you find sleeping being so uh, <laughs> frightening, where, where can they get hold of you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hayden Sporrell, same as Facebook. I'm on Instagram as well. Um, so, yeah, find me anywhere, and you can, yeah, you can roast me about the... The Sleeping Beauty issue. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. And you can find the rest of us on Twitter and Facebook at Film89UK. And of course, please check out the website, film89.co.uk. As ever, thank you everyone for you know the fantastic feedback we've had for recent episodes. Uh, Jacob and Leanne's episode on the social network that was another incredibly popular one, and you know just just thank you for downloading us and recommending us to your friends because you know you know we're just still growing from strength to strength and we're all very flattered by it all and and all the kind words that you know we get from each and every one of you. So thank you very much for that. And if you could please just leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. And I think that's about it. Uh, you know have a have a good Halloween or as best you can like a lot of us over here are going to be in lockdown uh, there's not going to be any trick or treating uh, sorry to end things on the tablet <laughs> but I was really looking forward to Halloween <laughs> oh, I don't even think we're going to bother getting costumes now <laughs> oh, the worst thing is my local cinema is actually showing Halloween <laughs> at, at 7 o'clock on the night of Halloween but no one's going to be able to go because we're all you know what IMAX is showing Akira across Australia except for in my state because we're still locked down so it is it's it's showing it here and yeah I I can still go actually so yeah I might try and fit that one in if I can before we hit full lockdown for the for the half-term holidays so there you go guys and girls I hope you've enjoyed the episode hope you have a great Halloween as best you can Uh, as usual stay safe stay happy but most importantly stay screaming (laughs) (laughs) nice one we're out of here